Well, this morning we are embarking upon a uh, new journey through a new book. And uh, just to give you a little reason for kind of how we uh, choose where it is that we will preach and those kinds of things, is that my heart's intent is to not neglect to uh, present the entire counsel of God. Which means that over the course of time, you will hear gospel uh, accounts from the gospels themselves. You will hear teachings that come from the letters. You'll hear uh, teachings that come from the history books. You'll teach. You'll hear teachings that come from the books of the law, and you will hear teachings that comes from the prophets. And so, for the next six weeks or so, depending on how. Uh, slowly we, we navigate this, we will be looking at the book of Malachi. Malachi is, so if you're finding your place, it is the last book of the Old Testament. So if you would uh, open yourselves to that book. This morning, we're going to consider uh, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1, after we kind of do a brief overview of the book. We will open our time in the Word in prayer first, and then we will read uh, the section that we're examining, and then we will uh, dissect the passage, make some applications uh, on the way as we go. So would you join me in prayer this morning? Holy Father in heaven, we need your grace this morning. We need your grace to illuminate the Scriptures to our understanding We need grace to inflame our hearts in affection for you and for each other. And we need your grace to move our wills to obedient faith. We praise you, Father, for your wisdom in creating women capable of bearing life. We pray for those who have been created to nurture and to raise children and to raise them up in the admonition of the Lord. We pray for those who have longed for children but weren't able to. We pray for their comfort this morning. We pray for those who have been overwhelmed at the prospect of bearing life and somehow they felt that they couldn't. We pray, Father, for your restoration of them this morning. We praise you for the possibility that our federal government will soon get out of the abortion business. We pray, Father, that as the responsibility returns to the states that your people would vote their Bibles and that they would cast their support for those who align with your justice for the unborn, Lord. We ask, Father, that you would have your way in our land, you would have your way in our church and in our lives individually. We pray all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So is, as you are able to stand, if you would, would you stand for the reading of God's inspired, infallible word this morning from Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. 
I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of God. Y'all may be seated. The, the title of our sermon this morning, I have entitled it Distinctly Loved. And when you think about our the vows that we take, say, in marriage, those of you who are married, have been married, or may one day soon be married, when you are gathered together to, to say your vows, one of the things that the minister will in, infallibly say, I think, in almost every situation, is that do you take this person to be your wife, husband, forsaking all others? And what he's saying there is that out of the myriad of choices of people in the world, I choose this person to the exclusion of everyone else. I choose to be married to this person at the exclusion of every other possibility. This is the spouse that I intentionally am going to love. See, love is this action. It is an action of intentionality, purpose, and it's distinctive. As you raise your children up, right? I was thinking about this the other day. You've got your kids, you've got them in the house, and you're loving them, and 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 they make mistakes right along the way, and you correct them. And, and but at the end of the day, no matter what they've done, you love them. Now, take somebody else's child and bring them into your home, and and they're behaving in the same way that your kids often do. You cannot withstand that sort of behavior from them, and you know that you can rid yourself of them, right? And so go home, let your parents raise you up and teach you the right things to do, but you're not going to do that here. But you have distinctly said, I love my child and they will be with me distinctly. That That is my child at the exclusion of all other children. I love children, period. As a group, as a whole, as a as a people, I love children. But I will tell you this, and I love your kids, all of your kids. But I love mine distinctly, separately, more or differently, I guess, intentionally. I love them at the exclusion of everything else. So that is kind of the theme that we're going to see from this morning's passage. And one of the things that, that, that I want us to see over time as we go through the book of Malachi is that there's a gift that God gives to those he loves. It's a tremendous gift. It's, it's like simultaneous with this understanding that you are loved by God. He gives this gift at the same time. And we kind of think of them separately. But there's this gift that comes exactly when you know, I am loved by God. And that is the gift of faith. I believe. Why do I believe? God loves me. And he gave me faith. I believe. It happens almost instantaneous. I don't know which comes first. Knowing the love of God or the faith that he gives you to love him. I, I, I don't know. 
I think it's, it's like when you strike a match. Can you tell when the smoke came and the flame came? Did it all come at the same time? How did this happen? It's, it's immediate. Well, in Luke chapter 18, uh, Luke poses a question that we will consider as we travel through this book of Malachi and as we uh, travel through it this morning. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When Christ comes to returns, will he find a church that has adopted the world's philosophies, its norms, its affections? Will he find those who measure his love toward them based on some sense of worldly success? Will he find those who dispute with God, saying, God, the world is different now. Things don't work the way they did then. That the scriptures were meant for those people at that time and not really for us because, God, you've got to understand that things are just different now. Will that be the church that he finds? Or will he find those who trust in his promises, who say that no matter how difficult the circumstances of my life are, I trust in the future promises of God. That if God said it, it is, and therefore I have placed my trust in him. Why? Because God has chosen to love me and gave me faith. I know God loves me. He gave me faith and true are his promises. I can look around the world and see my circumstances and it seems to be falling apart. But I have read the, the totality of scripture and I understand this, that it's not falling apart. It's falling into place. It's falling into place. I trust in the promises of God. I trust that when Isaiah said that of the increase of his government, there will be no end. I believe that in my heart of hearts that the promise of God is true. I put my faith in that. I look around and see that there are no circumstances may not line up with that, right? It may seem that King Jesus is being pushed aside. But I trust the promises of God. And he says that of the increase of his government, there is no end. So will we be those people? Will he find uh, people who are trusting in the promises of the world to fix their spiritual problems? Will he find faith or will he find some form of godliness, though they would deny its power? You see, Malachi is kind of a bridge for us. This prophet will bridge for us the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's kind of putting an end to the Old Testament era, but it is, it is immediately looking forward to the messenger who's going to come and announce that, behold, the one who takes away the sin of the world is here, right? So there's this, this bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but there's also this idea that when we look at this passage, I hope that we see it as a mirror. That, that you see that there's the Old Testament era giving it, it, it way to the New Testament era. But at the same time, I hope you see it as a mirror to the era in which we live today. So let us jump in and we'll take some time in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So every word in verse 1 is important for us to take some sort of note of. First, this is an oracle. And what is an oracle? An oracle here, in this case, is a judgment. It is 
a revelation of God and his word to his people. It's a revelation of who he is. It's a revelation of his past, present, and future. It is one that comes with a warning. And it's going to come off immediately. How is this? I have loved you. The love of God comes, though, as a warning to God's people. I want us to get this. A warning of the events that are about to transpire. An oracle is a warning about judgment. In chapter 4, verse 1, is the warning. He says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming, and that day is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And secondly, I want you to see where the warning, who it comes from, where it comes from, and who it comes to. Secondly, the warning comes from the word of the Lord. What God speaks comes to pass. The oracle of the word of the Lord is how he begins this passage. The warning comes from the word of the Lord. What God speaks will come to pass. This is a warning concerning judgment from the heart and mind of the creator God. This judgment that is to come will surely come to pass as it is from the Lord God who is always true to himself and he cannot lie. The rightful judge is speaking this warning. Thirdly, we should note to whom the oracle is addressed. It is addressed to Israel. It is addressed to a people with whom God has made a covenant. The oracle is not a warning to the people outside of covenant relationship with God at this point. This is a, an oracle to those who are within the covenant, those who have been rescued in the past from Egypt. The oracle addresses is, is just as what Paul addresses in, in Romans 9. And if you would keep your thumb there, we're going to be in Romans 9 back and forth a couple times this morning. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. This is who Malachi addresses this to. And finally, the oracle is given to the covenant people of God through the man of God who is appointed as God's messenger. The Hebrew name Malachi means my messenger. God delivers his word to his people through his messenger. Malachi will foretell in this book of the coming messenger, won't he? Later on, he will tell of John the Baptist who will announce the coming of God's word made flesh, Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. I was thinking about this this week, that as we come to a worship service and we come prepared to hear the word of God, who should always the primary target of the preaching of God's word be? Who is the primary target for warnings, judgments, all of those things as the word of God is preached? Who's the primary target? The people of God are the target. The people of God are the target of God's message. You know, elsewhere it says that, that, that judgment begins in the household of God, right? So the warnings come to the household 
hold of God first. And the target of, of preaching today ought to be for the people of God. Think about how far we've come. Think about how far we've come or strayed or vanished. When the church starts to look like an entertainment center, when it starts to look like a huge show, who is that for? It is not for the people of God. It is for the world. We've come, we want to address the world. No, address the people of God with God's holy word. Then what do they do? They, 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 they push the word of God aside to tell stories of things that are going on in the world and in their life and making all kinds of things. No, it is the word of God for God's people. That is the place where the gospel preacher must stand up in front of his church and he must be aware that this is no ordinary book. This is the very word of God. The gospel preached in the church setting is for the people who claim that they have a covenant with Jesus Christ. They are saying by confession of faith that they are part of the covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. They are God's covenant people. The gospel is preached to people who confess that Christ comes, that Christ is coming. And this comes as a warning to the unfaithful members who are saying that they're part of the covenant, but they're not. God's word comes to those who uh, should hear Every time they hear the word of God, every time you and I hear the word of God, every time I hear it, I ought to evaluate the genuineness of my confession. Is my confession genuine? Is there evidence of my faith? And then it's an encouragement to the faithful. It's an encouragement to the faithful that the promises of God will soon come to pass. I believe that the promises of God will come to pass. It is both an encouragement, but also a warning to get us to evaluate is my faith genuine? Is my confession real? The preaching of God's word comes from the very heart and mind of God to God's people through God's appointed messenger. And I'm not saying that I'm standing up here being that I am a special, but he has set me aside for this job to deliver his message. But what does that mean for the church, friends, as we hear God's word? It is this. It means both the hearer and the preacher ought to approach the preaching of God's word with holy fear. Well, the people in Israel's time, in Malachi's time here, they've been rescued from Babylon, from captivity, and the time that we are in in this passage is, is near the end of Nehemiah's reign as their civil governor. They are under Persian occupation. And scholars place this time around 430 B.C. The period is after the reconstruction of the temple that is described in the prophet Haggai. The reconstruction of the temple promised some things to them. It promised God's blessings. It promised the ingrafting of the nations. It promised prosperity. It promised peace. It promised a tangible return of God's presence. But the reality that Malachi describes in this book is that although that they have some freedom in their religious practice, they are ruled not by a Davidic king, but they are under the rule of the Persians. The reconstructed temple was physically and spiritually inferior to the original. Malachi mentions no visible manifestation of the presence of the glory of God in this book. 
And instead of blessings, prosperity, and peace, the situation is privation, drought, crop failure, and pestilence. With this background, Malachi's oracle begins. And the book is organized around these seven disputations, or seven times the people of Israel argue contentiously with God. God speaks a truth to them, and then he presents their opposition. Today, we're going to focus our attention on the first of these three contentions of the people of the covenant against their God, Yahweh. Verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yahweh declares, Israel, I have loved you. As we already stated from Romans 9.4, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Not to mention that God has rescued them and redeemed them in Egypt. If you remember from Exodus 3, it says, He has heard their prayers. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good land, a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now... Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which which the Egyptians oppressed them. See, Yahweh has heard the cries of his people. He's attentive to their prayers and has time again throughout their history restored them despite their many failures. And Yahweh here declares, I have loved you. But the question comes and should come. I want you to ask this question, and I hope that I do a good job of unfolding the reason why I'm saying this to you this morning. I'm asking this question, who is Israel? Just who is Israel? See, from Romans 9, 6, it says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are of his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. See, not all who have descended from Israel belong to Israel. And here in verse 2, he says, I have a distinctive love for you, Israel. Out of all of the other choices, all of the other peoples on the earth, I select you to the exclusion of all others. I'm declaring a distinct love for Israel. But it is a distinct love that even has more distinctions that it is for true Israel to whom the Lord loves. He has that that self-same love has given them faith in his promises. So I would ask you this morning, do you have faith in the promises of God? If you can boldly declare, I have faith in the promises of God, and I know where some of you sit and some of the uh, emotional battles that you guys are in and the spiritual battles that you're in just this week, but you can say, I trust in the promises of God. And if you can say that boldly and with faith, here's what you can know. God loves you, and he has given you that faith. That is not something that you conjured up on your own. 
It was a gift given to you by the Lord because he loves you. It is a demonstration of his love toward you that you have been given faith in the promises of God. And then I would ask you this, to ask yourself, and I ask this often, are you faithful to live as a person of the promise? Are you faithful to live as a person of the promise? If faith has been deposited to you, though it's not the result of your own perfection, but it is that true Israel, the true faithful, will live by faith and not by sight. Right? They will live by faith and not by sight. When Christ returns and he finds his church, and his church is, is mired in trial and tribulation, will he find faith? That's the big thing. Will he find faith? And I don't mean some vain, faint confession from your mouth. He means, will he find faith that the trajectory of your life is faithfulness to him? Trust in him. Faithfulness. Will, you, will he find faithful people? That despite their circumstances, say, I trust in the promises of God, and so I'm going to be faithful to the commands that He has given me. Even when the commands are troublesome, even when the commands and the world around me says, Oh, why are you doing that? It's so old fashioned and antiquated. No, those are the promises of God. God has given me promises, and He's told me to be faithful with the things that He's given me, and this is what I'm, I, I am to do, it's just to be faithful. You know, when you're a preacher in a church, in a small church, and you can look at people who have, you know, thousands of people listening to them preach every Sunday, and then the preacher can get jealous of that and, and can think, well, why, why am I not preaching to a crowd of 500 and 600? Why am I not doing that? Why? Well, used to pray this as I was walking. Lord, you didn't ask me to be famous. You called me to be faithful. Quite simply, the Lord called me to be faithful. And in my sinful self, as best as I can, by the grace of God, I want to be faithful. Faithful to what He's called me to. Will Christ find the church that is abiding in the true vine, Jesus Christ, when He returns by faith? Despite her circumstances. Jesus, when He dresses the churches in Revelation, what does He do? He declares His love for the church. He declares His love for the true church. He declares His love for the overcomers. Those who overcome the world. And who are they? Those who overcome the world by faith. They're faithful. I call you to this. And he says, go back to the things that you first love, right? Remember your first love. And be faithful to what I've called you to. And then I love how each address of each church ends with, he who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is speaking to the church. That come, that's a warning too, brothers and sisters. He who has an ear to hear what the Spirit speaks to the church. What is the speech, the, the, the Spirit speaking to the church? When Christ returns, will he find faith? Will he find you faithful? Not perfect, brothers and sisters. 
doesn't say that, does it? Will he find you perfected? No. Will he find faith? Will he find you faithful? So let's look at two. Again, two B. So first, Yahweh says, I have loved you. But you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? This is what they might say in addition to that. Our crops are failing. We are in the middle of a drought. How have you loved us? Your glory seems but a distant memory. We are under occupation from Persia. There are deadly diseases killing our families and our livestock. How have you loved us? The world around us mocks us. The people of Israel suffer. So the, the world around says, oh, you suffer. And yet, look at you. You're pathetic. You worship an unseen God. The world mocks. How is it that you have loved us? You see, the world around says to us who are in Christ and living by faith, they say to us, you are foolish. You are but a fool. Look at your surroundings. How has God loved you? You are pathetic. Look at the world around you and the problems that are in it. How can you say that God has loved you? How can you say this? How have you loved us? And God responds, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Yahweh declares here, that his love is vindicated in that of all the rebellious and sinful people of the whole earth, I chose you. I chose to love you. I gave you the gift of the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. I made a choice to love you. To you, I gave faith. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through eight says this, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. He says, I made a distinction between Jacob and Esau. Not according to custom did I choose. I didn't choose the one that I ought to have chosen according to your rules. Not according to anything that they had either done or not done did I choose them. I chose to love Jacob, your father, giving him the promises that he received through faith that I had deposited to him. Romans 9, again, 11 and 12 says, Though they were not yet born and had nothing, either good nor bad, had they done, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. God chooses to love God, and He's still choosing 
That's the amazing thing. See, those of you, those of us with saving faith know this, that it's all of grace. We know this. We know it's all of grace. We know that there's no way that we can brag about our salvation whatsoever. We know that when we come to the cross of Jesus Christ, that the only way, the only thing that we contributed to our salvation at that point is the sin that made his death necessary. We contributed the sin that made his death necessary on our behalf. Those with saving faith know this, that it is all of grace. Ephesians 2 tells us this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, that spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And here comes the greatest two words in the Bible, I think. But God... But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 29, it says this also, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful and not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God's love for you is vindicated in this, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and God makes a distinction between those He loves by choosing some who would believe. He makes a distinction. And if you believe, it is because He purposely and intentionally chose you, passing over many. But to you, by grace, He gave faith. Why not my neighbor? We might, just like Israel here, think about things in human terms. How have you loved me? I've made a distinction. Well, if you are so loving and you have a way of salvation through faith, why not my neighbor? It's not fair. That's our humanity speaking. That is our grumbling against God. That is what they are doing here, is disputing his love. When we say things like this, why not my neighbor? It's just not fair. Again, in Romans 9, verses 14 through 16. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And in 19 through 23 of the same passage, it says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So Paul here is anticipating the pushback. He's anticipating them saying, this is not fair. This goes against my human sensibilities. Who can resist his will? And Paul says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? You see, as R.C. Sproul says, to some God gives mercy, to others he gives justice. But since God knows owes no one salvation, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's the truth. No one gets injustice from God. Some get mercy and some get justice. Some get, some get mercy for their sin and some get the justice that their sin deserves in themselves. We get mercy and justice in that God is just to have placed our sin upon his son. But to some, God gives mercy. And this puts amazing back into amazing grace, doesn't it? Why not my neighbor? I know many people who are well-behaved, kind, nice people who are going to hell, who reject the gospel again and again and again. And I think about them and say, these are wonderful people. Why not them? And then I know me. And I know my own frame. And I say, why me? Why me and not them? And all I can say is, grace, grace, grace. God's grace. God's mercy. I don't understand. I don't understand fully his choosing one over another. But I know this, he's given me faith because he loves me. And he loves many, many. And he's, he's wanting us to proclaim that love to many, many, many. And then verse 5. He says, your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Yahweh says, just as I chose you, Israel, to love at the exclusion of Esau, I am making the choice to love sinners from every stripe, from every tribe, from every nation. You will see that true Israel will stretch well beyond the border of ethnic Israel. And you will be exceedingly glad in that day. Malachi speaks of the messenger that is to come who will announce the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
when through his perfect obedience and faithfulness to Yahweh, true Israel will be Jesus Christ and all from Israel's border and beyond that border will be uh, included and grafted into him. One day, he will bring us all into him. One day, the gospel will go beyond the border. And here's what I'm thinking about this. As I think about this, I want you to, to contemplate this with me. We don't know whom God has chosen. As Jesse reminded us, that in eternity past, God placed his love on the people that he's calling. By God's divine, sovereign Initiative, God gets to be God, and we get to be us. And he doesn't tell us who the elect are. But he tells us, go and proclaim the gospel to all the world. Be my messenger. And when we proclaim the gospel, it comes with a warning, doesn't it? Whenever we claim that God, we preach the gospel, it has to be kind of couched slightly or the, or maybe even first sometimes, and sometimes second, but it has to be couched in this idea that God is wrathful against sin. That judgment is coming one day. We have to couch it there and, and then proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ's death and his resurrection for sin. And then, and then we say, do you believe? Do you have faith? And they proclaim, Jesus Christ is Lord. And then you rejoice with them and say, from eternity past, God loved you. From eternity past, God loved you. And know this, that that love of God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And what has God called you to do now? Has he called you to be perfect? He calls you to be perfected in him, yes. But when he comes back, will he expect that you have mastered all? When he comes back, he'll ask you this, and only this. Do you have faith? Have you been faithful? Have you been faithful with what I've given you? Has the trajectory of your life changed toward faithfulness? Stumbling along the way? Pleading with God to pick you up when, he's, when you've dropped down to the ground? You know, when you think of David and you think of faithfulness, you think of all of his failures. And God says, this is a man after my own heart. This is a man who, when he fails, gets on his face and says, oh God, I'm a desperate man and I need you. The world around me is coming against me. Everything is, is, is dread. I wish that I had never been born. And then in the next voice, it's praise God for your great salvation for me. This is a man that God says he honors me because he's faithful. He pursues faithfulness. That's what he's calling us to. And so here, 
when the Lord warns Israel that a judgment is coming, that the day of the Lord is coming, and he says, I have loved you. Underneath that is, I've given you faith. My expectation is faithfulness. And we're going to see failure time and time again to remain faithful. And God is making a distinction in Israel, isn't he? True Israel is faithful. Not Jacob, not Esau, but Jacob. Faithfulness is what God is calling us to.